0: Life Worlds, the place where we explore life through other eyes and minds. Let's flip the script and discover how to orient your world around nature. I'm Alexa Furmanish. Come join me as we get down and forage for fungi, stalk coyotes, draft laws for rivers, hum with beehives, sing bird language, and help beavers to dam again. Let these stories spark your reconnection to nature's multiverse. Learn how to bring ecosystems back to life, become an agent for other intelligences, and begin to see how you too are the sum of all life worlds. You're listening to the full episode of Rewilding with Christine Tompkins. First, let's start with the basics. What is rewilding and why should you care about it? Rewilding is a very particular form of restoration ecology, which is a pretty fancy way of saying bringing nature back into a state of balance. Rewilding does some things that other forms of restoration just don't do. Most often, it involves reintroducing the missing parts and processes of an ecosystem, such as keystone or native species, carnivores, herbivores, imagine jaguars, bisons, wildcats, water voles, shrews, aurochs. All things big and large. Those are just some of the friends who can be present when land is being rewilded. And when these animals return to somewhere they may not have been for hundreds of years, they do what they like to do best. They are themselves and they begin to chomp, munch, trample, poop, eat. And this means that they begin spreading seeds, drawing down carbon, changing the vegetation of riverbanks, recreating and restoring all kinds of invisible relationships and behaviors that enable life to exist. Some animals are architects, like the beaver who build dams that make nests for yet more species. And some animals actually need our architects to remove obstructions, to allow fish and rivers to flow once more. Honestly, once I got into it, I found rewilding to be like the portal of Narnia that brought me into the life worlds of so many species because it began to illuminate how each different part is magnificently affecting the whole. It stretches our minds, and it asks us to expand our empathy towards other species. It asks us to expand our ability to share, because we need to share our landscapes and allow these other lives back into their original homelands. So there you have it. Rewilding is about letting nature do its thing and enabling the Earth's natural rhythms to express and ebb and flow, and about us humans learning to cohabitate with other forms of life. As always, the Lifeworlds website has tons of resources to go down the rewilding rabbit hole. For now, here is Christine Tompkins, ex-CEO of Patagonia, who together with her late husband, Doug Tompkins, managed to protect over 14 million acres of wildlands across Latin America and 30 million acres of marine areas. This power couple are considered to be some of the most successful national park oriented philanthropists in history. Christine is also chair of the National Geographic Society's Last Wild Places campaign and was the first conservationist to be awarded the Carnegie Medal of Philanthropy. Chris shares with us just what the word wild means to her, how she transitioned from being a high-rolling businesswoman to living in the Chilean bush, the role that beauty plays in her life, and why macaws need to befriend robots. Here is Christine Tompkins today on Life Worlds. So Chris, welcome to the show. We talk about a bunch of things, uh, with really one of the central ones being the human relationship to other forms of life. And so, especially because I'm speaking to you, I, I want to encourage us today to, to be a little bit wild in our conversation and to be non-linear and kind of unpredictable and go down strange paths and roads and and see where the conversation takes us because there's a lot about the kind of work that you do that is deeply philosophical and psychological as well. Um, And I kind of want us to wade into into that territory because you know it so well. And I think all of us have a lot to learn from you. So I don't know how that sounds. And if you're you're game.
1: (laughs) No, it sounds fine. I'm it, it matches the state of my mind at the, at the moment with so much going on. Yeah. That is, some of it's seemingly disconnected, but of course we know it's all connected. So I'm happy with that format. If, if that's the case, then maybe,
0: let's see, I wanted to talk today, and maybe we'll just talk about it right now, the title of your of your TED Talk, which was Let's Make the World Wild Again. I'm really curious to hear from you what you mean when you say wild and what wild means personally to you as Chris. What does that word mean to you? And then what does it mean to make the world wild?
1: Well, that's a really good question. And of course, when you use a term like wild, it's really hard to, to define it because just as the word implies, um, wildness can be found anywhere. It's in your mind. It's it's how you get up in the morning when you look out the window. What are you seeing? Do you see your human neighbors or do you see your non-human neighbors? How does it and where does it place you in the world? Are you uh, a Christian who sees our dominance over the world, the non-human world, or do you see yourself, uh, amongst the many sentient beings on this planet? Um, it can be in a wildlife full of adventure and sort of living on the line, so to speak. That can be in an urban setting, but in our in our lives, it's, it's, it's a non-urban setting. It's out in very isolated places and, and uh, feeling that edge where your life depends on your decisions and the circumstances that you're in in the moment, whether it's on a river or it's at many thousands of feet, whatever it is. And I like the intensity of what I think is a wild mind and a wild life because i think it makes your life much more complex even day to day wherever you are if you start to live as though all life depends on it on the on the actions that you take and the way that you see yourself but more much more importantly how do you see everything else and so i think In my case, very personally, my life really became whole when I started with my husband 30 years ago, trying to restore areas and bring back species that had been extirpated in some cases for over a hundred years. And how does that, (laughs) what are the results of that? Of course. From a numerical standpoint, from an ecological health standpoint, but really, what does it do to your own head? <laughs> so, all those things uh, come to mind when I think about the concept of wildness and our necessity as humans not to leave that behind, but in fact, take it with you wherever you are. You could be in Zurich, you could be in on Mount Everest, but we should never lose our connection to that.
0: It's almost like we have a a form of more infantile wild when our wildness is just a human cultural wildness. You know let's have a wild night out or a wild conversation, but the wildness that you're speaking to you know it's a jaguar is back in a landscape after over half a century of not being there and That is a, it's a participatory wildness in that larger story that surrounds us. And as you said, it's, it's kind of on the edge, like it's not comfortable always, and it's not always feeling safe. And it's sensing yourself at that borderline of being in a landscape where also there is something that, that could attack you, right? And generally these creatures don't, but it's just that sense of like, something here is so whole and so much larger that your own sensitivities and kind of your own body picks up and wakes up. And I'm wondering in, in some of the places that, in Chile and Argentina and elsewhere, where you've restored these millions of acres of, of lands and national parks, how did your wildness come out more through those interactions? You know, was it gazing at in the eyes of um, a macaw that had just, re- you know, come back to... It's sort of home, uh, even though it wouldn't have been its home when it was born, but its ancestral home. Uh, Or what were those moments that you felt that wildness, that you saw it, that it was palpable for you?
1: I think uh, when I first got to Chile in 1993 and Doug uh, flew us in in his small plane into where we would be living for the next 20 years into a roadless area in the extreme South of Chile. I think that's where I really came to understand that I'll be damned. This is wild. You know, I had retired from Patagonia Company, but you had the right gear. You had all the right gear. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I'd retired from running Patagonia Company. So this was from two days To the next, I retired and moved to South Chile in a roadless area. And um, as adventurous as I'd been over the years uh, at Patagonia Company working and in my non-working hours, I was not prepared (laughs) for the true wildness and isolation of the Southern coast of Chile. That was wild. And, and so in the first year or two, you're just adapting and adopting to, to that isolation, to, to that, how do you organize yourself? There are no grocery stores. There's no nothing. You have to fly out to get anything that you need. So it's funny, but the, the terminology, you, wild, starts from the moment your urban mind Is I'm going to use the word assaulted, which is pejorative, but it's an assault (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) that you realize you have to be careful. You can't break your leg out here. Uh, Something that would happen to you in the city, and you can be rushed to a hospital in these areas where we've been working the last 30 years, you have to be incredibly mindful that. if something happens to you, the chances of getting out and and having that kind of attention in an emergency isn't likely to happen. So, so these are all small examples of of that transition from being an urban person and a businesswoman to working in impenetrable temperate forest. That's how we got started and. The extreme south of chile so again the sense of wildness is so multi-layered and circumstantial and then finally you really realize you are just among these beings who are out here just evolving as they always have in this case and you start to identify with it and and it's not that you lose your uh, habits of modernity or urban life, but they fade to the background and you, in a way, step in to a world that is not really interested in you. You can be the CEO of Patagonia, but, you know, in the wild, you're just another thing that can be eaten or can't get lost or... <laughs> And I and I really appreciated that. I I have come to seek that out, to to have that uh, confrontation with the true world in a way that is incredibly humbling, and um, I'm really grateful that I've had these two extremes in my life, which very few people have, I think.
0: It's a massive dose of sort of ontological humility almost.
1: <laughs> That's exactly <Right>? it. <laughs> and, you know, it does
0: it does make <laughs> me think, one of the, the, and we'll get later into conversation on what rewilding is and practically what it entails, but one of the big challenges in the rewilding movement and then the restoration movement, especially when you're bringing back um, certain keystone species or apex predators, it's that human domesticity um, that is not prepared anymore to um, accept and integrate, I think, these other forms of life around us. And so, you know, the I don't know if you've seen recently, but they're um, planning to cull a bunch of wolves in Yellowstone and other parts of the U.S. again. And so it does beg this question of, like, how do we prepare and I know that you've done activism in your work and a lot around communication, which is also why I ask this, like, how do we prepare a society, and I'll say principally a Western society, and it shows up in lots of cultures and lots of ways, to 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 be ready to accept that kind of life again, and to be ready to accept that humility and that understanding that you're never safe. And it's just the hyper object of climate change that's going to come get you if it's not, you know, a cougar, (laughs) right? uh, That's right. And arguably one is more noble than the other. I'd rather, I'd rather have a, you know, so how do we, how do we rewild a human civilization that is just so freaking far from that? And it's it's a big question. I'm not expecting a comprehensive (laughs) answer by all means, but it is something that I spend a lot of time kind of thinking about.
1: Well, I think as you say, it's, it's the complicated question. And in every case, especially when you're, as we do, we're working with large carnivores because we're trying to start with keystone species. In some cases we started with species farther down uh, the food chain, but, and even those can be complicated, but nothing compared to the work we've done with jaguars, cougars, ocelots, Um, the big guys who actually are quite safe, but nevertheless, just being a big cat (laughs) puts you in the wrong column. (laughs) So the number one thing is, if you're going to rewild, bring back a keystone species, you have to first eradicate, erase the reasons that they went extinct in the first place because you never want to bring them back and then have them go extinct again. And this is, I think, to your point about wolves in the Northwestern Rockies. That issue was never really resolved legally and culturally. And so you have a species like the wolves, who have been really successfully reintroduced. And in three states, key states, they're being shot, as you say, packs at a time. Because the originating reason they went extinct in the first place has never been improved, at least in that specific region. So there's a tremendous amount of work, the socialization of why to bring a species back the economic benefits of local communities to see that that species comes back. You, you become involved very deeply for a very long time in terms of local pride. And, uh, and really, finally, as I mentioned, the economic benefit of having a fully functioning ecosystem, which is the only reason we do this, is very evident If you take Iberá National Park, where we are in northern, northeastern Argentina, it's roughly 2 million acres of grassland and island forests. It's a vast wetlands. There are 10 communities around that wetlands, and to the one, they were all essentially ignored over the last. Hundred years, maybe longer, small villages, small towns. And we knew that to reintroduce jaguars, cougars, ocelots, even giant anteaters, giant water otters, that we had to get those communities enthusiastic about it at first. And for years, the only work we did was to socialize the idea. that the the rock star of the province has the opportunity to come home. Now, in that case, in Corrientes province, where we work on this project, the Quarantinos have always seen the jaguars as their spiritual uh, representation, so that it's been gone since the 1930s, though people accepted it, they always mourned the fact that they were gone when their whole sense of self-identity was a jaguar. So I won't go into all the details because we'd be here for a few days, but eventually the entire province became champions of bringing these jaguars back the schools, all the kids with faces painted like jaguars in the parades, you know, this is the classic socialization of, of really any subject. And um, and it took us a long time to get the first jaguars into the breeding center, which was in the middle of our project, and then an even longer time to actually see them released and out into the wild. So, So there were years of anticipation to the point where the people in Corrientes were saying, come on, get them released. We want wild jaguars. We don't want domesticated jaguars. But I won't underestimate uh, how long it takes to socialize the return of a large predator. And today we have eight jaguars in the wild, more to be released. And they are the point of pride for the entire province. So that's a long way around um, <laughs> to answer your question of how that gets done. Because it is everything. It's, you can't be the one to be releasing jaguars into the wild. It has to be you on the technical side but it has to be the political leadership it has to be the kids it has to be the churches it has to be everybody on almost every block in every town and village that says those are our jaguars and we will
0: protect them and mean that's what's so challenging because they're in you know this jaguar was maybe part of their cultural heritage and almost the myth of the place and i think that rewilding is often more challenging when it's maybe a less iconic species or it's that story was so long ago, or it's just a few communities that hold it. I think also what your story really exemplifies is even maybe above economic considerations, although maybe that's what helped onboard the, uh, the process initially, you're speaking about the role of beauty and you are, and you and I have spoken about beauty a little bit in the past. And I think that I'd be amiss if I didn't bring it up in this conversation because you're talking about the way that some aspirational image of an ecosystem and of a culture gets revitalized. And that is an act of beauty and these children in the streets and people painting themselves. And these are deeply um, celebratory acts. Uh, And they are not, I think, I mean, there's obviously lots of nuances, that kind of story, but it's not doom or denial or chaos or there's, there's another dynamic at play there, which, which is the, the evocation of aesthetics and beauty of like, this will be a beautiful landscape. This will be a beautiful culture if we have these creatures back with us. And so I'm curious throughout your, throughout your life and to whoever might be listening to this, who's developed, you know, designing a campaign or thinking about how to get involved in an ecological movement and they know what they care about. I think we should talk about the, the, the role of beauty, because there's a lot of anger, there's a lot of desperation, there's a lot of uh, grief. I know I can feel that very often. I just write poetry and try (laughs) to let it pass through me that way. But um, what is, you know, what has been the role of beauty that guided your work and I know also Doug's work? And where does that fit into your projects?
1: Well, I credit Doug with really... training my eye and my ear and my sensibilities about beauty. I think all of us who are interested in the arts and even within our companies and so on and and our private lives, you, you have a sense of what beauty is. I like it. I don't like it. Um, I like those colors. It's a very superficial sense of what beauty is to you. And really through Doug, I began to understand what it was I was looking at and how, what does beauty really mean to us? And for me, I would say I've almost trained myself to think of it as looking at something in its absence rather than its presence. And today I look at at beauty as something that's whole, that things are working, things are functioning. And sometimes you can't see that unless you start looking. It's almost looking for negative space in a painting. What is absent from this story? And what's the impact of that absence? And it could be a species. It could be really anything. Um, I, I'm a student of beauty now, and I think I'm, I'm 71 years old and i will study beauty until the day i die and hopefully after i'm dead <laughs> that then things could get really beautiful <laughs> i it it is a you can sit in the same chair and look out the window and really think about what it is you're seeing and what's the iconography of the things that you're seeing is it an industrial model is it and of course, there is beauty in an in industry in a certain kind of way. But mine has become, and certainly Doug's was, the beauty when when everything is present. I, yeah, I guess that's all I would say when everything is present in, in an ecological system in this case. It's a very deep and I think uh, endless well. I think you don't stop growing, developing your understanding of what beauty is, the sort of perfection in terms of wholeness. I mean, I look at myself sometimes. I look at pictures of my face when Doug was alive, and, and I look at pictures of my face after he died, and you can see wholeness on one side and survival on the other side in two photographs. And it's maybe somebody else wouldn't see it, but I see it. And so it's like a, a, in my case, a third or fourth language. And you just chip away at it. It's like learning to read ancient Greek. Oh gosh. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: You tracked the landscape of your face, like you tracked your own world there, and saw what happened when some keystone species of my life isn't there. Exactly, it's so interesting. I started. I've started writing this article. Um, a tentative title is like "Extinction is Loneliness," because I was reading about all of these deep time histories and um, relationships between different these different symbiotic mutualistic relationships between certain flowers and certain pollinators, and they only release one kind of chemical for one very particular fly that its neighbor doesn't even produce. And that fly is coming in and it's one part per billion, but that scent calls that fly in. Or in the case of the ants, the ants that farm particular fungus that creates a bacteria that's then on their skin, that, that that's then feeding the acacia tree. and These are relationships that have existed for hundreds of millions of years. You know, 400 million years in some cases. We have a lifetime with a human being that we love, right? You know, 40, 50, 60 years. Uh, these are 400 million years of relationality. Right. And what happens if you're that flower <laughs> and you send off your signal and no one comes? And no one comes. Hmm. Right? No like comes. That's extinction. It's, it feels like it must be so lonely. To be the creatures, as you said, like beauty is this absence.
1: It's interesting to me how you're, I think you're less than half my age and how, how you have advanced your thinking on so many things at such a young age, how, what's informed this? (laughs) I'm sorry, but you're very unusual.
0: (laughs) Loneliness. (laughs) (laughs) Lots of time alone with books. Yeah, There's probably some truth to that. And yet that, that absence of relationship is extinction. And the thing that concerns me the most, and that's why I think that your work is some of the most dignified and important work on this planet, is because if we don't have a baseline to understand what wholeness is or can even be like, you know, if the only forest that you've known is a fourth, you know, fourth generation like a tree farm and that's your definition of a forest or a marine protected area it's you know it's a few fish swimming in an aquarium um, or you know it's a greenhouse versus some kind of polycultural garden If, if all of these are become our baselines how do we know what to advocate and protect for right and and so the fact that these millions of acres of land Will remain in in some form of their state, because obviously they'll rely on creatures that are decimated somewhere else. So they're never going to be necessarily you know, in an optimal state. But when we don't have those places, then then there's no baseline for beauty, or there's no baseline for what the emptiness or the belonging is. And so that that leads to a question I was thinking about. The model that you that you guys kind of espouse and created. How relevant is it for today when these large swaths of landscape are maybe less connected, less present, or are there still enough large lands that can serve as these bastions of of life? And does the work even look different today? Let's say I pick up the work that you've been doing. How how do I do it differently? Is there a different model or a different way of thinking about it? Even for, honestly, we'll talk about economics later, but even for the economical context we find ourselves in.
1: Yeah, oh, those are a lot of comments. Let me um, uh, walk through them. First of all, I know exactly what you mean about the ecological baseline. I was diving in the Galapagos, I don't know, just before COVID. And I, I'm i in the water, I'm looking around, and I am absolutely dazzled by everything I see. And then I suddenly realize is this a lot or a little? <laughs> I have no idea where I'm looking in the curve of ecological health in Galapagos to its devastation. Am I at the top of the curve? Am I falling off the back of the curve? And it was an epiphany for me because I thought, Christ almighty, I have no idea. <laughs> it's, it seems like a lot to me, but what do I know? This could be, and, and in fact, I asked a lot of people about this uh, once I got out of the water and hence, what was I seeing in the Galapagos? Was I seeing a lot or a little? And I was seeing, frankly, a little. That was such a good reminder to me that when when I love being in Africa, when I go to Africa or any place I go, I think, oh, I'm seeing so much wildlife, but is it a lot? Or is it little, is this the front end or am I looking at the back end? So I I think, um, having that tough conversation with yourself and reminding yourself that wherever you are, and it can be having to do with human suffering, doesn't have to be the non-human world. What am I seeing? Is this healthy? I, I need to know what I'm looking at. Okay. So that was the first thing. The second thing, I, uh, I think our work has changed tremendously over the years, even how we've looked at what we're doing. When Doug and I got started, we, we were involved with the activist issues around the world and so on. But on the conservation side, we were really acquiring large tracts of land and donating them as national parks and seeing that that in itself was what we were trying to do. Create national parks as we have seen in the United States, where are they perfectly managed? Never. Are they protected? Yes. So it was only about 15 years ago when we started working in areas where there were a tremendous number of species that had gone extinct, mostly locally extinct. And we thought, well, wait a second, what are we doing here? national parks was never the goal the goal was always to wherever we work and before we leave we leave properly functioning ecosystems and so i think by and large that's exactly what we've done but in in a, most of our work now we have to go back in and reintroduce the the keystone species that are missing and work with local communities from the very first day, wherever we are. And so we're not in the national park business. What we're in the business of are these fully functioning ecosystems. And that was a comp- sea change for us because uh, it forced us to see all these national parks we created were just a strategy towards something else. They were not an end of themselves. That was a big change. and. Um, We never tackled marine conservation to the extent we probably thought we should, but we were so busy with these other areas that we never focused on it. And not long after Doug died, I uh, went to Sofia Hananen who runs Argentina and and we ended up doing, creating two no-take zones, the first of the country in the Southern Atlantic in, in Argentina huge territories of marine no take zones. That was the first try. And now that we're doing that in both Chile and Argentina and I serve on a body of issues that are outside the Southern Cone, the the Antarctic commission on uh, waters off the continent of Antarctica and things like that. So uh, besides rewilding, uh, working very aggressively in the marine sector has changed our work quite a bit as well.
0: There's an interesting question there because when you create a no-take zone, um, let me say it differently, you spoke about fully functioning ecosystems. And as you pointed out earlier, you can separate the human, right, from what's happening. And I know that in a bunch of the projects that you guys ran in South America, you had ranches and regenerative farms and this kind of economic component. Yes. And the creation of a no-take zone obviously must be paired with some other formation of a bioregional economy or a bioeconomy. And it's kind of interesting, like traditional conservation and economic development have always been at odds, um, but they're not actually at odds. And it's only by enmeshing those two worlds together that we can maybe hope to protect ecosystems because people need to make livelihoods from the land.
1: Absolutely.
0: At the same time, um, the current form of corporatism and uh, capitalism in today's form as it exists in, in the majority of companies, I'm not saying all companies, I loved how you called Patagonia, what was it, like an anti-corporation or something. <laughs> um, so there are these kinds of renegades, but but there's still a, a model of growth that doesn't suit a, a local bioregional economy structure, and so I'm curious in, in examples that you've seen. How do we ensure that these places get further enmeshed into a human um, production system in a sort of very healthy symbiotic way? Like, how do we become tenders to land again in this current form of economics? Is it possible, or is is there is there an intractable conflict there that you're like, uh, actually capitalism must die. (laughs) And again, I think that reading some of the activist pamphlets that you guys were, were sponsoring back in the day. Um, but I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts on that today, you know, kind of blending the pragmatic with where maybe we'd like to be.
1: Yeah. I mean, I can tell you that the vast majority of the seas, especially from zero to 200 miles offshore are carpeted, with industrial fishing that is draining the seeds dry of its, of its wildlife. So um, that, that we're going for no-take zones is an act of desperation because you're trying to work in the areas of the nurseries and, and these are huge territories. It's it's much more difficult, I've found, than working the terrestrial side. It's much more political. It's much more, uh, I, I would say, greedier. So we decided to concentrate on no-take zones because most everybody is going for Marine protected areas, which is multi use, and really they break down into a state where the protection can be quite low. So we're a small team. I don't think we'll ever have to worry about cutting people out of their uh, harvest of the seas. We hope that we have an impact on the industrial fishing fleets, which are really rapacious and truly. Uh, very difficult to fight. So the question about the economic questions associated to conservation, to rewilding, um, if you you look at where 90% of the real damage comes from in terms of economic development, it is within the globalized economy. I mean, I hate to sound like an old 70s leftist, uh, which I wasn't. (laughs) But the truth is, there are very few number of people who drive the globalized economy. And yes, this form of capitalism is rapacious, but more, more clearly unsustainable, which everybody sees because it shows up in the form of climate chaos, it shows up in the form of the great extinction of species. But that hasn't changed anything. Even understanding that has not really forced people to change. You can have COP meetings after COP meetings, and the truth is they're they're incapable of moving, I would say, against, the largest corporations because sovereign states are subsumed by their economies, which are driven by people who are not leaders of those countries. And everybody knows this. This is not some great (laughs) um, secret. And until, in my opinion, which I wish I did not have, until we really... Increase the level of suffering at a human level. We humans don't seem to be capable of changing our economic practices. And I get asked all the time, what are your thoughts about climate change? Do you think it's coming sooner than later? And it's very, you know, I have to keep myself Calm because I'd like to reach through and grab them by the neck and say, There are billions of people today suffering from the outflow of, of climate change. Yeah. If you go to the Sub if you go to the South Pacific, if you go to Louisiana in the United States, you will find crushing human suffering. And we don't calculate the non-human world suffering in terms of climate change. It's here, it's unfolding. And yet the, the wheels that drive this are, are very difficult to change. So when we do our work, it's all local and regional we work with the heads of state of the countries we work in of course because that's what it takes to do a lot of this but but basically you you have to believe that your work if if your conservation work is going to last into the next 100 years 150 years you have to join in the evolution of local and regional Communities and economies, because in the absence of their health, you can forget about everything you're trying to protect. So we, we we can't one can't separate themselves from those two facts. So it changes so you were asking earlier what's really changed about our work? This has really changed in our work. And we always worked with communities when we first arrived someplace, but now, now it's at a much deeper level in in terms of how what is their long term health and and what are the benefits from having conservation next door to you that will really stabilize these communities who have been very hard scrabble
0: i think that the challenge with being like a like a student of things that collapse and i remember one of our first conversations you you shared that you've you think a lot about collapse and civilizations, and <laughs> unfortunately, I have as well, and read some that some of those books yeah. that, that have occupied me my lonely times. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's humans change through beauty in a good day and adversity on bad days, yes. right? And as you say, it is. Unfortunately, the our historical records does have some sobering lessons to bear in what you just described, especially because those who um, have more agency sometimes, political, economic agency, are more sheltered from those immediate effects. So even just the question of like, is climate, you know, then you're like, well, just go to these places. Yeah, step outside. (laughs) yeah seriously something that frustrates me a lot in the in the sort of climate sustainability impact investing philanthropy movements like all of these movements that are like okay we're we're doing something good it is so incredibly anthropocentric the conversation and it's the reason for mm. this podcast it's like you know if you take a deep ecology perspective it's like all forms of life exist for their own intrinsic value yes and as a human being we can never place a value in another form of life they have every single right to be here Just as us, by the way, they are our ecological, genetic kin. Like they are our family. If you go back far enough in time, they are. They have every single right to be here, and yet here we are in board meetings and decision tables. Like, oh yeah, let's like allocate them this much space and do this much space. And kind of the the slavery of nature. Sorry to use such strong language, but like we know what it's like to enslave humans. Actually, I'm
1: going to steal that from you. Yeah, no, please. I never thought about it that way.
0: (laughs) It's visceral, but it's true. It's like nature is our I don't know if this is political, and nature is our slave. And, and, you know, that's why it's something that I'm passionate about is the rights of nature, because it tries to balance that, albeit an anthropocentric system. Um, but just the, the way that the climate conversation is still about human flourishing, right? And it's still about how can we as human beings get through this bottleneck? And it's like, no, we're only going to get through this bottleneck if we start to connect differently to other forms of life and understand that we're doing it for them and with them as our equals or even as people who we're serving, mm. right? And so that, that, that jump is probably too idealistic for most people to live. And yet I know that through direct experience of the living world and traveling to some you know, wild places or even just hopefully something that's mm-hmm. more simple, we can have a human civilization that starts to say, okay, I'm doing this for the trees. I'm doing this for the fungi. I'm doing this for the robins. I'm not just doing this for me.
1: Oh, I think you're absolutely right. Is it possible? Absolutely. There's no question. You have to decide. What kind of world do I want to live in? What what side do I want to be on? <laughs> and And I think, I think, one response I have to what you just said is, you're right that w- when you talk about climate change, when you talk about um, the Greta Thunbergs of the world and the kids in the street and so on, the uh, the majority of people can't lock into that. They they're worried about the things they won't be able to buy and so on. But I think. I think we have to look at pushing forward in parallel. You cannot leave human communities behind because they happen to be living under circumstances, as Sir David Attenborough said at the front end of COP last month or a couple of months ago. The very people who are affected by climate change today are those who have no capacity to move out of the way, which is a huge point. You and I can move oh, it's getting too hot here, I'll go someplace else. They can't move, and they have no voice whatsoever. The the fewer assets you have, the smaller the voice. And if you're living in territories around the world that are somewhat isolated, forget it. So we have to talk about climate and the extinction crisis on the human scale and the non-human sc- scale together. I, I remember talking to the dean of Harvard Business School. This was before COVID, and, and I and I, I said, "You're preparing people at HBS as if everything's staying the same. It's not. <laughs> You're doing people a disservice if in the hallowed halls of HBS and other business schools and, and the finest universities, if these facts and circumstances, if if you're not training them to get out there with, with all of their education and all of their privileges and not fight against, work, and instead of fighting against, work toward something that is not the world we live in today you're at the caboose of the train i know companies who do more than business schools in terms of changing their behavior and so on and business schools university any any institution of learning should be on the front end should be looking out there and what's happening and and actively training inspiring motivating people to get out there and be the ones who will change the end of this story so it's it's not a human world it's not a non-human world it is life it is recognizing these people who have lost everything all, already and are on the move trying to go north into Europe or wherever they go. Um, That's, if I stay awake at night, this is what keeps me up. I despair over the, the deafness of institutional entities facing all these things.
0: Yeah, the, the inertia and the sort of entrenchment of interests because People are able to live well for now in those kinds of settings. Um, you and
1: I live well.
0: Yeah, and I think it is—it is truly this, you know, this word compassion. Because we're never going to affect change, I think, without some degree of empathy and compassion, even for uh, those who we really struggle mm-hmm. to to understand. Um, and that's going to lead me to a little bit actually back to the where we where we started, which was when you. Arrived at the dirt road, and you're like, "I'm going to be living here now." Like, what were the what were the sensitivities? Yes, okay. What were the what were the sensitivities that you needed to develop as a human being to do your work well? You and Doug, what were those 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 physical embodied capacities to sense an ecosystem, to understand what was needed, to work with the humans? Because I think we talk a lot about like strategically how we can do these things and technically, and, you know, we can put show notes and things like that, or to how to do rewilding well. And I know you guys open source a lot of your work, but as, as a human being, as a person and people in your team, like what are the sensitivities that are required to do the work well? And what is it that the science can't tell you Mm. how to do, but that you go ahead and do it anyway. And maybe it's like Mm counterintuitive or, you know, like, the tree told me to, <laughs> everyone has a kind of anecdote like that. And, yeah, and, and, and I think that we need to demystify it and de yeah. like new age it to just make it something that's actually very practical. Like we need a whole human to do this kind of work well. And so you as Christine, like, how do you show up as a whole human?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I think there, to make it incredibly simplified, I think there are two kinds of uh, <laughs> reactions when you start working here or you work in Africa or you work, I don't know, in the Arctic, wherever it is. First of all, like me, I arrived there and it was like a heroin user abruptly having no hair in it, heroin, <laughs> heroin <Stark. laughs> to inject into your veins. <laughs> I mean, I went to a place that had an airstrip for our planes, no electricity. Um it was nineteen ninety three so no internet, no phones uh so I had my own psychological almost physical withdrawal i didn't speak even though I grew up in California we lived in Venezuela as kids for a while. I spoke really anglo spanish so i couldn't i couldn't really work with anybody because i i didn't have the language yet and and my and I lost my sense of self in social circumstances because you sit at the table, everyone is speaking Spanish, and you you understand it, but by the time you form a comment, the 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 have been there. The, yeah. the, the 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 conversation has moved on by a mile. So the first two years I would say I was working and I don't know who could see what in my reaction, but it was tough. I went from being the CEO being in Paris a few months, a year, you know, it was just a very different lifestyle. Uh, and fortunately, madly in love and, and, and that worked out well. Most of the people who work with us over the last 30 years are, they came with a very different coat of fur. They're biologists, veterinaries. They knew exactly what they were after and they came to us to work with us because there weren't many opportunities like this around for them. And most of them have been with us for at least 20 years now. And these are people who are, um, they're highly educated, but they they are dedicating their lives to bring back jaguars and to, you know, everything we've been talking about for the last hour. So uh, the one thing Hillary Clinton said that I really, really agree with is that it does take a village (laughs) to create anything. And in our case, so much of what we've done is sort of the Doug and Chris show. When It couldn't be farther from the truth. We are truly a team and as i said many of us have worked together for a few decades and you have to want to push back against the you're not trying to roll the clock back i think actually that would be easier oh i'd like to go back to a simpler time i'd like to go back before all the jaguars were extinct we're trying to push the clock forward we're trying to jacklight territories that have been severely and biologically important, but, but by and large, ecologically trashed. Push that forward much faster than it might, or, or perhaps not at all, um, evolve. And that takes people who are relentless. We just had a large fire in Ibarra. It burned. Um, 400,000 acres. I saw
0: that. It was a fire in a wetland, which is just terrifying, right? Because, it's terrifying.
1: Yeah. Wetlands on fire. It's... That's where I'm headed in a few days Gosh, Yeah, to go back down there and see the team. So 60 of our people were fighting a fire for two weeks on the front lines, really almost no tools. And our Jaguar breeding center, the, everything was at risk. And these people just stay and they 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 hold to task, they are completely committed. So where does that come from? I don't know, but boy they show up and you're just thankful they do and they stay. Now that we have Jaguars back in the system after well, since the nineteen thirties you can so easily take that for granted oh jaguars are back the red-shouldered macaws are back but underneath that statement is lie years of work with these extraordinary people teaching macaws to fly again didn't know how to fly so i just would sing the praises of the people who do this work
0: as as you rightly should and i think a lot of us long to be able to make a physical act to defend the things that we care for and love for. Um, not to say that I would necessarily choose to fight a fire, but I think that the, the act of defending other species is, especially during a time of crisis like the one we're living in, a deeply validating experience that a lot of people almost long for. They want to be on the front lines, you know?
1: We have a lot of volunteers who come.
0: We met through one of your volunteers, Um
1: that's uh, right. Frank. <laughs> That's right. Lucky us. Uh, something I, I try and ask
0: us if, if we can get around to it is, um, is there any particular species or creature or landscape that has brought you a life lesson? And I think I ask this question because when we hear these examples, it can open us up to seeing something in you. And so is there a particular, um, animal or pl- place that has taught you a fundamental life lesson, something about what, whatever it may be, right? Like courage, sadness, strength. I don't even want to put the words in your mouth, but.
1: Yeah, I would say the red-shouldered macaws. It was audacious. I was really not in favor of trying to bring them back because they'd been gone for 150 years. And it was very hard to find individuals at all They had to come from Europe and all over. And when they arrived, they were fat, didn't know how to fly, didn't know what to eat, didn't know how to crack things open with their beaks. And they were just a shadow of who they actually were and the team who taught these birds to fly. They didn't know what a threat was, what's a threat. So... Uh, puppetry using puppetry attacking a, a macaw puppet and all the macaws sitting up in the cage screaming and crying because this wild cat is attacking a puppet macaw and through that this is months of training so then they begin on oh if we see something that looks like this then we have to fly away And today they're flying in the wild, they're breeding, they're having chicks in the wild. I think we have 13 of them out now and many more to come. That told me that we are all deeply capable of being self-realized at any moment in your life, whether you're young or you're 85 years old, that those... Inherent beautiful instincts that we have as sentient beings never blow out. We always have them. I'd say I'd say those guys. That's
0: a wonderful story. It's like if the macaws can make it back into the landscape, we can too, right? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know there's actually a person who made an electronic, like a like a mechanical device that is Puppetry for birds to be reintroduced, by.
1: teaching them that is, what to eat. I didn't even know that kind of stuff existed. Yeah, what are the trees in the forest where they'll be released? What What are the nuts and fruits they have? You have to go harvest those, and then and and teaching them how to fly from A to B, but not flying in a straight line. How do you get move your wings so you can fly through the middle of trees? I mean, this is months and months of training each bird so that they have the chance to be free and realize their lives and and bring that species back.
0: I feel like you should be training the macaws in one part of the land and the next door you should be doing
1: the human training or like,
0: all right, guys, this is how you make a fire. This is how you well, make a I shelter. I feel like I have
1: been trained
0: And these two, it's like a movie. I can see these two things happening at once. You know, it's like
1: the human training and the McCall like trying to fly. You know, we have so much video on this. And when you come down, you'll see something, something that is a marvel.
0: It is. Oh my gosh. I, I cannot wait. Christine, blessings. Thank you for being here. I love the conversation.
1: No, thank you for having me. And I look forward to seeing you in Europe, not too far from here.
0: Thank you so much for listening to the podcast, and stay tuned for a fresh Lifeworlds episode coming out in just two weeks' time. We'll be delving into arguably the most mysterious of all the kingdoms, that of the fungi. I would love to hear from you, and please reach out to me on the website, lifeworld.earth, where you can also find all of the show notes and an awesome open source library ranging from everything from ecology to technology and life at large subscribe to our email list and I'll see you back here soon.